Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. How do we tackle the digital divide? Nicole Turner-Lee at the Brookings Institution says, first, we need clear data to tell us who does and does not have a consistent broadband connection. But in 2020, that information is still hard to come by. Today, where we live, we talk with Lee, the author of the forthcoming book, The, Digital, the Digitally Invisible, How the Internet is Creating the New Underclass. The pandemic has shown us that affordable, reliable internet access is vital, but it's still not accessible for millions of Americans. Coming up, we find out how the city of New Haven has responded to the digital divide in its neighborhoods. Now, this is the second Where We Live show where we focused on internet access. We'll tweet out a link to our previous show, At Where We Live. I want to welcome Dr. Nicole Turner-Lee, again, a senior fellow and the director of the Center for Technology Innovations at the Brookings Institution, joining us on Zoom. And Nicole, welcome to our show. Oh, thank you so much, Lucy. I'm glad to be here. Uh, I mentioned your book, The Digitally Invisible, How the Internet is Creating the New Underclass. Uh, One of uh, the people that you interviewed was Janice Fleming Butler, who's on the phone with us now. She's owner and founder of Voices of Women of Color in Hartford, a social justice firm that works with the public and private sector to address issues around voting, education, and public health, among other issues. Uh, Janice, welcome to our show. Thank you for having me. I wanted to start with you, Janice, because you are a Hartford resident, a community activist, and for several years you've been uh, working on this issue of Internet connectivity. Uh, You, at one time, uh, were working with then-Consumer Council Ellen Katz, looking at the impact of a lack of high-speed Internet in Hartford's north end. How did you get onto this issue, and what did you find, Janice? Um, So... First, let me just say I'm an organizer, not that, not an activist, um, but that's neither here nor there. But um, we got we made a connection through a business owner named Max Katari, who owns Express Kitchen in the Northeast District of Hartford. Uh, the businesses was having a hard time and continue to do so to connect on the internet while taking credit card payments. And many of them still to this day don't have the service that they need to run their business because of the cost and the lack of connectability in the District 5. And so I had been talking to my brother about Max, who I consider my brother. I had been talking to him about not having the same connectability in the Blue Hills community that I had had in the Asylum Hill community. And I found it to be very interesting because each community is less than a mile apart. But what I quickly learned is that while living in the Asylum Hill area, I had been on the hospital grid. And therefore, my speed, my access was uh, one that was of high quality. Hello? I'm here. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, And so when I got to the Blue, my husband bought our home in Blue Hills, 
I learned very quickly that I was sending emails, folks weren't getting them, that it was taking like forever to connect. So my husband went out and he bought all of these like uh, expanders, mm-hmm. nothing was working. And um, finally, I got a call from a woman named Ellen Katz who asked, could she speak to me in regards to uh, connectability in North Hartford? And I thought it was perfect timing because I personally was struggling with that issue. Mm. And there started our journey on asking ourselves and trying to answer the question of who's connected and how do we get them, if, if not in this community, how do we get everyone in North Hartford connected mm. to high speed um, um, internet and shorten the digital gap disparity? You mentioned the connectivity that businesses struggled with, but when we look at education, uh, there's a term, the homework gap, uh, where there are millions of students around the country, even before the pandemic, who struggle with doing their homework because they don't have good uh, home internet or access at all. What did you find about the homework gap in the North End, Janice? Well, that was one of the things that we had discovered and I changed the way that Ellen was approaching the issue is we we went through the community and one thing that was very obvious obvious were that the schools were located in the same proximity of the businesses and so i started to say to myself if businesses are having this issue families and children must be having this issue as well and so i spent about six months um interviewing parents interviewing uh uh parent providers Um, teachers, and finding that, in fact, children were either going to McDonald's, sitting out in front of schools, trying to find connectability to get their homework done. So it was much broader than just businesses. It was creating this um, disparity between urban and suburban communities in terms of access to Internet. Mm. In some of the cases, we found that it was about cost, right, that you had parents saying, listen, when I go to the cable company, they'll give me a bundle. I can't pay the bundle, and now I don't have Internet. And then when they provided me with the $10 uh, package, I have five kids who are Internet, and none of them can all connect at the same time. So what we were finding is that there was multiple levels of issues, one connected to cost, Another connected to that they didn't have good access in their community, that, you know, fiber wasn't led, laid and, and mm-hmm. so forth. And so all of these factors have contributed to what we're seeing now under COVID of children really struggling to compete um, at the level of, of others who have that access. You're hearing Janice Fleming Butler on the phone. She's owner and founder of Voices of Women of Color in Hartford. It's a social justice firm that works with the public and private sector to address uh, issues in the community around housing and education, among others. I wanted to bring into the conversation now uh, Dr. Nicole Turner-Lee, Senior Fellow and Director of the Center for Technology Innovation at the Brookings Institution. Uh, Nicole, you've talked with uh, Janice before. Uh, We were talking about the lack of connectivity even before the pandemic 
pandemic. And now we're in this situation where uh, these disparities have really uh, been drawn forth into the public light uh, because so many kids and adults have had uh, to be sheltered in place these last several months. Yeah, and I want to say, you know, hello to Janice. Uh, we have a mutual bedfellow, which is Ellen Katz, who I actually saw testify in Washington, D.C. about these young girls who are walking to the local McDonald's to get their homework done. As you mentioned, Jessica Rosenworcel at the Federal Communications Commission has coined the term the homework gap. And that homework gap is really Prior to COVID-19, the inability of young people to get access within their home to complete the very basic functions that they need to do as a student. And, you know, Lucy, you're right. Right now we're struggling, right? Because one, we went into the pandemic with a digital divide, a divide that the FCC reported as having about 23 million people offline. Some would even suggest it's 40 million people who do not have access to broadband for the many reasons that Janice has outlined, availability affordability, uh, et cetera. But now with the pandemic, we had about 53 million kids that had to go home and shelter in place, to your point. And in that sheltering in place, we discovered that about 12 to 15 million of those children did not have a feasible broadband connection within the home to do the basic remote learning work that was required of schools. And in addition to that, and we often do not talk about this, we had low-income children in particular, who had one device with multiple Mm. siblings in the home. So we have found ourselves to be in a really big quagmire, right, when it comes to giving access to those who need it the most. I mean, the most vulnerable in our society, particularly our students, who, you know, will not be able to continue the trajectory of education without the right resources. You know, instead of a textbook, a laptop, a tablet, that wasn't there. And so I'm glad you're having this conversation because I know in my visit to Hartford, meeting Janice, meeting Ellen, meeting business owners, we have a problem. And a problem that we definitely need to move from number seven on the list of things to do as far as national priorities to number one. Janice, how frustrating is it that this is an issue that uh, officials have talked about for some time, even before the pandemic? And when this pandemic started, there was a rush to get laptops into the hands of students. Uh, Some school districts, the students didn't get them until even May uh, after a couple of months of a shutdown. And again, it's not just having the device, but having that connectivity at home, especially if there's multiple people at home that need to be online at the same time. I'm so glad that you pointed that out because it's not just so much about having a device and the report that, uh, uh, that my girl, my home girl was talking about is the report that I had wrote. And it is very important for, it was very important for me to highlight that this just isn't about having a laptop. It is about having connectability. And even, you know, with all of the scrambling, it was like, for me, this aha moment, right? I caught you. Here we are now, right? Are we going to be holding Comcast and other providers accountable to making sure that every child has access? There was a time where our children, black and brown children, were not allowed to read, didn't have access to books, still don't have access to good books. And now what we're doing is we're transferring that into technology, and so when we're talking about bridging the d- digital gap, history has shown us that if we don't do this, we're going to lo- lose and leave behind a bunch of kids who have suffered generational 
uh, have suffered for generations, their families, in terms of not having access to what they need to thrive in, educa- in, in, in education. So for me, it was quite telling at this time, not surprising, but quite telling, and more importantly, shocking of the numbers, right? We know that it exists in rural and urban communities, but at what, at, at how, how high of a, a cost and how high of uh, the number of children who don't have access blew my mind, mm-hmm. right? So you're looking at your city, you're looking at the state, but if you realize at that moment that it's bigger than you, it's bigger than your state, and that this can no longer be at the bottom of the to-do list for anyone, this is an issue that we all must address, that we all must attack equally. Uh, here in Connecticut, there was a survey of school districts during the pandemic, and uh, that information from that survey found that an estimated 29,000 children in Connecticut, there was an internet access in the home was a barrier to them. And disproportionately, those students are in the opportunity districts, which are the 10 lower performing districts uh, in our state. According to this same uh, survey, a little less than half of students in these districts fully participated in distance learning. Uh, Nicole, this is really troubling when we think about that disruption uh, in education and the fact that this may be happening again come fall. Yeah, you know, I have spent the last three months, in all honesty, just exhausted because I've been surprised by the lack of um, flexibility and adaptability schools have had. And I realize, and I think it goes to Janice's uh, conversation, I love her points because there's so much on target. We haven't overlaid digital connectivity with the variety of systemic inequalities that people face, particularly people who are vulnerable. And as a result of that, I think schools, you know, had high aspirations for the type of technology that was available within the classroom, but did not really realize the landscape of connectivity outside of the classroom. It's really interesting, right before the pandemic, I'd finished a research paper looking at two school districts that were beneficiaries of the National Connect Ed program that was started by President Obama. What I found was, you know, these were, again, like you were mentioning, low-performing schools, but they had all the bells and whistles, right, within the classroom. They had tablets and 3D mm-hmm. smart boards and printers, etc. But when it came to this pandemic, it appeared that schools did not have, I think, the fluency that really allowed them to bring that bandwidth and empower neighborhoods to actually stay online. And it was almost as if schools in particular were placed in, in a lane that they were not familiar with. You know, how do you create connectivity around schools? I have gotten so many calls, Lucy and Janice, from schools who are asking me questions around how to build a fiber network or an unlicensed Wi-Fi hotspot or a mesh network. And these are administrators. This is not what they do. Um, and so I think the first thing that schools have to start to realize is that this is a new wave of learning. This is a new trajectory, I think, to Janice's point, that is going to break the shackles of, of poverty and opportunity for a variety of students. And so it's very interesting that this would be in an opportunity zone, but it's not surprising because I think particularly in places like Hartford and urban communities, there's the assumption that we've sort of solved the digital divide as well. When what our data is suggesting is that we may have a lot of pass through of companies that have invested in our cities, but we may not have the competition or we may not have the price point where families can actually sustain a broadband connection over having food on their table. And so I think, you know, again, schools were placed, I think, in this area where they had very little data, 
They had very little uh, proof of concept of how to actually make this work. And I want to give it to schools to a certain extent. They did have a moral compass because some schools around the country decided we're just not going to do this. And a lot of school districts, particularly large urban school districts, really shut down at the end of March. I think going into this next phase, and I'm sure we're going to talk about this, schools now face a bigger challenge around reopening. Mm -hmm. And if you listen to all of these hybrid models, this is not going away. If anything, what I've actually been suggesting to school districts, you need to get this right. And having a 21st century remote access blueprint is the start of actually, you know, coming up and calibrating a plan that could actually work. I'm glad you brought up that point, Nicole, uh, because uh, we know that in Connecticut uh, right now, the plan, because infection rates are low, is that all schools will reopen. But if a child gets sick within a classroom, that means the whole class will have to quarantine. They'll have to switch over to distance learning. And if the school districts don't get it right now, uh, you're going to see more uh, disruption of learning uh, in the future. Yeah, if I can speak on that, I mean, that is probably my greatest concern right now, you know, not just as a researcher, but as a parent of two. You know, we're talking about schools that are considering a hybrid model, three days on, two days off. I'm in Alexandria, Virginia, and our schools are trying to look at that 189,000 kids in our school district. But at the same token, they're trying to figure out how do you keep a 50 percent module? I mean, I would suggest, Lucy, that as schools had to think creatively during the pandemic, um, there were wireless uh, Wi-Fi enabled school buses deployed in places like South Bend, Indiana and Florence, South Carolina. There were Wi-Fi hotspots that were checked out from libraries and given to students. There were partnerships that were created with the private sector. I think schools need to reimagine their purpose and think carefully about all of these potential blind spots as well as scenarios because they're going to happen. There will be a kid that will get sick. And I, I wanna just share this as an idea. It was something that Hartford's, uh, uh, Janice's leadership and Ellen's leadership got me thinking about. You know, we have had young people for so long travel to destinations where there's Wi-Fi or where there's some type of connectivity, at least in a public form. You know, obviously with COVID, they couldn't do that. But we actually saw this country uh, the parking lots of schools and libraries become digital parking lots. I was actually on a segment for a news show and a woman in there had her six children in her one car with a device trying to tap into the Wi-Fi of a wireless enabled school bus. I would just say to America that that's not enough. And outside of it not being enough, it's a very you know humiliating experience to sit there with your kids trying to make sure they get their homework. There were educators, Lucy and Janice, that were sitting in those parking lots teaching remote uh, access plans to their students because we also assumed that the teachers also had access. I think when we actually go through this process towards reopening, we need schools to keep that creative genius in their head as they're thinking about how to solve this problem. It may require that those digital parking lots become digital parks, that we teach our children outdoors. There may be areas within the community like a church or uh, I know in Hartford, Janice shared with me that some of the schools are at half capacity. There may be space within the school to keep students together through the course of the year. We have to balance both the public health consequences along with the broadband and remote access consequences. And I would suggest that we need schools to sit down and think about both equally because schools do a very good job when it comes to instructional design, but the extent to which they can solve this problem, they're gonna need everybody at the table, right? 
-hmm. they're going to need to put their heads together as to what worked in the last three months during this national pilot, what didn't work, and what they need to do to mitigate that risk of further infection. Mm. Interesting points, Nicole. Janice, before we head to break, I want to ask you what conversations are happening now in Hartford between your organization or others in the community with the superintendent, with people who are thinking about reopening schools in the fall? Well, I want to say in fairness to Dr. Uh, Leslie Torres and to our mayor, Luke Bronin, these conversations were happening before the COVID. But I want to I want to add something because municipalities and Department of Transportation in terms of infrastructure has a role to play here, too. When Route 44 was being built, I was arguing, arguing that we then lay fiber or whatever we needed to deal with connectability. We can no longer continue to develop in urban communities and break open the grounds and break open the sidewalks and not lay conduit, not lay fiber to make sure that connectability happens, right? So it's not just so much about educators. It's not so much just about uh, teachers and having a plan. It's also having an infrastructure plan that allows a city to be wired. And that oftentimes get missed, right? We can no longer allow DOT and other entities to develop, to build without laying down the cyber and, 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 and everything we need to connect. That is a big, huge part of this conversation that we don't talk about. We talk about what it means academically, what it means for our children, but we don't talk about who needs to be at that broader table and why. One of the whys is because we don't know where fiber starts and ends in cities. And so that, be, that becomes a question of access again. So one of the things we're doing is, again, Ellen now is over at Tulsa, a private entity, and she is working with myself, the mayor, and the superintendent to look at different spots in which we can engage on broader hotspots and kind of go into what, going to that model of looking at open spaces, creating uh, internet parks, and so forth. So those conversations have been ongoing. You have to have the will and the money, and this is where the state is going to have to step up and really say to municipalities, hey, get me your plan and let's figure out how to fund this. But it can't be without a conversation of infrastructure as well. Janice Fleming Butler again is owner and founder of Voices of Women of Color in Hartford. Janice, thank you for joining us today on Where We Live. Thank you. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. My other guest, Dr. Nicole Turner-Lee, will stay with us. She's senior fellow and the director of the Center for Technology Innovation at the Brookings Institution. Coming up, we're going to talk more about how municipalities, as Janice mentioned, uh, should be working to bridge the digital divide. Who is at the table? Uh, We're going to talk to the city of New Haven, and we want to hear from you, too. How accessible is reliable, affordable broadband where you live? You can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
This is Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel, broadcasting remotely. Just two months ago, the New Haven Independent reported that the Elm City had accelerated plans to set up free Wi-Fi in the Newhallville neighborhood. The plan was, quote, part of a broader goal to bridge the city's digital divide. In its digital plan, the city cited census data showing that a third of residents, including students, are without access to affordable broadband internet in the city of New Haven. What's the impact on them, especially during the pandemic? Joining us now on Zoom is Michael Gormany. He's budget director and acting controller for the city of New Haven. Michael, welcome to our show. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Also with us on Zoom is Nicole Turner-Lee, senior fellow and the director of the Center for Technology Innovation at the Brookings Institution. Uh, Michael, so we were hearing a little bit about um, some of the conversations that have been happening even before the pandemic, especially uh, in the city of Hartford. But I'm wondering, in New Haven, when we talk about lack of broadband, if you could drill that down further for us and talk about the residents who were most impacted. Sure. Thank you. Um, yeah, so um, as your guests had mentioned prior, you know, I think this is something that the city of New Haven had been looking at before the pandemic, realizing, you know, um, the access that was really needed for our residents in New Haven for free Wi-Fi access or um, just bridging that digital um, divide within neighborhoods. So I think what we took a look at um, starting uh, mid last year was really looking at implementing a digital inclusion plan um, for the city of New Haven. We looked at it in uh, two phases, basically a short term um, approach of how can we get free Wi Fi or Wi Fi access to those who could not afford Wi Fi um, or who did just did not have access to Wi Fi. And then on a longer term strategy, we were looking at how could we make Wi-Fi more accessible to the city as a whole, as far as like building out a fiber network um, within the city of New Haven. And I think that's very important as, um, as Janice and Dr. Turner mentioned, you know, there is certainly a gap in um, various cities in Connecticut on the access to Wi-Fi, the access to devices, and just in general, looking at um, looking at how businesses operate, how students, um, especially during this pandemic, um, can do their homework or have to learn. I think um, that is one of the things that New Haven is looking at at the moment. And again, as you mentioned at the start, in looking at accelerating that process um, in the Elm City. And so when we talk about the Elm City, there's several different neighborhoods. Uh, the goal was to pilot Wi-Fi access in Newhallville. Tell us about that neighborhood. And when we think about cost and access, uh, does one trump the other or is it a combination of, of both of why uh, residents there aren't able to have reliable Internet? Um, I think what we look at is we look at just the uh, overall neighborhood structure in the Elm City. And when um, my predecessor, the previous controller, was doing the surveys, I think what we found was that was the neighborhood that had the least amount of access during our survey um, to Internet and Wi-Fi. Um, so we said, 
how could we better help that neighborhood as far as um as far as closing that digital gap um so as we were looking at the 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 neighborhood itself and how could we structure and provide that type of service in a cost-effective manner for for that neighborhood i think um you know we looked at piloting um various ideas um whether it was partnering with a current provider uh such as a comcast or a new haven we have go net speed as well or whether it was building out our own infrastructure um to provide services to that area so again i think um we we took a survey of just various neighborhoods in new haven and found that you know we that the new hallville neighborhood had the least amount of access to um to wi-fi um so that was the neighborhood that we felt we should pilot um as far as just residents and students um within that area Hmm. Uh, Nicole Turner-Lee, I wanted to bring you into the conversation. Uh, the New Haven Green uh, in the middle of, of the city, uh, f- there's free Wi-Fi there. And I'm wondering if you could talk more about how cities are really taking the lead, like New Haven, thinking about how to expand access, uh, because there are just so many areas around the country where this is still problematic. Yeah, you know, I want to commend Michael and what New Haven is actually doing to look at their broadband access uh, challenges. I mean, this is not easy. And again, I want to stress to the listeners that this is an issue that has been going on for the last 20 years. I mean, the digital divide did not just show up with the pandemic (laughs) and it's not actually going to go away when the pandemic actually, you know, finally begins to ease if it ever eases right at this point. I think what we're dealing with is one, I think a national uh meltdown and failure because we really don't know where broadband access is in this country. Mm -hmm. And I like what uh, Michael is saying, because what you're trying to do is what I've been suggesting to communities, which is to look locally, Uh, particularly look at schools, right? School districts in particular are, you know, maybe two, three, four zip codes, but schools in and of itself may be one zip code. And what you're doing in terms of identifying where those assets are from an infrastructure perspective, trying to figure out what provider is there. uh, And I think, you know, trying to figure out what's the best solution, Lucy, as you're talking about, I think is the next stage. The challenge that we're going to have going forward, when I think communities like Michael um, sort of uh, outlining for New Haven is the speed in which we could actually build these networks. Uh, These networks take time. um, And there are a series of rules related to that that may either accelerate or hinder the process, as well as the fact that we need at the table the variety of stakeholders to assist us with that. I want to share this, and and I don't want to sound like a, a, a pessimist, but I have heard a lot of cities, you know, talk about in the state of Maryland, uh, Governor Hogan just uh, released a similar type of announcement of enabling Wi-Fi hotspots. I think that those are good measures to ensure some type of, you know, access to individuals and households who do not have it. But the challenge is we also have to know where these Wi-Fi hotspots are going. In the case of libraries, for example, In some low-income communities, those libraries are four or five miles away. They are not within walking distance for young people. 
I really want to urge um, city officials who are working on broadband concerns to think about empowering local digital infrastructure. Places where people live, like housing developments, may be a great place to put a Wi-Fi network, particularly when you're trying to reach students who are on free or reduced price lunch. The reason why Hartford's McDonald's worked so well is because it was two or three miles away from where these kids went to school and where they lived. A local church could be a host of Wi-Fi, a mobile Wi-Fi bus. And I, I kind of keep pushing that because I think we have this assumption that there will be one solution that will fit all. And we really need cities to work closely with their school districts and their business leaders and their community organizations to just figure out where are the blind spots. Because we're now in a race to connectivity that is a life or death situation for the millions of school kids who, if they fall further behind, they will lose the race towards social and economic mobility. Or businesses, as Michael has been suggesting and Janice suggested of what's going on in Connecticut, they will not be able to transition to business models that break the chains of an analog existence that are no longer there. Mm -hmm. And so I, I keep you know, trying to stress, Lucy, that Wi-Fi is one of the solutions, yeah. but there are other solutions that we should be looking at that may be helpful or other places that we should be looking at in terms of the deployment of these new networks. Mm. Uh, Michael Gormany from the city of New Haven. So tell us again, uh, you, you had this pilot. This was uh, something that was talked about. Uh, again, the digital inclusion plan uh, happened before the pandemic. But how has uh, COVID sped up the timeline? And how do you make this work? How do you get this public-private partnership buy-in to help uh, not only expand Wi-Fi, but thinking about a fiber network uh, to increased connectivity for all of your residents? Yeah, no, that's a, a great question. I think uh, Dr. Turner made some great points. Um, right now, the current uh, administration is looking at uh, public or private partnerships. We're in talks with a few folks on trying to build out that city network um, within the city of New Haven. Uh, it goes again to what I said earlier on, we're trying to solve a short-term solution and a long-term solution, which is, you know, not an easy feat to, to take in. So we're looking at partnering with uh, just different entities to, to look at how do we build out that network? Because I think Dr. Uh, Turner made some great, great points on, it also depends on where you put that fiber. Um, if a neighborhood where 50% of its residents do not have access and that fiber is 10 miles away, that does not help that neighborhood. So I think New Haven is trying to take a strategic approach in working with different partners um, on funding and ideas on how to build out the fiber network. Our local school system is doing a great job um, that I'm working with as well. And they're actually looking at the New Hallville neighborhood also and looking at how could they provide um, access to students because we don't know where we're gonna be in September. And I think, you know, this pandemic has shown our strengths and weaknesses as far as to when it comes to the digital divide within New Haven. And we know we have a lot of work to do. And I think, again, it's going into 
what is our short-term solution um, in providing free Wi-Fi access and what's our long-term solution to building out that digital network within New Haven. Um, the pandemic has certainly accelerated our timeline, um, especially with um, this Connecticut's plans on reopening schools and what is school going to look like. So we've definitely made that a priority here in New Haven um, as far as accelerating the timeline on how can we provide the access. And frankly, um, as Dr. Turner Lee said, also, you know, there's an equipment aspect that we have to uh, look at here in New Haven as well. Um, if a family has four students going to the same school, but only has one piece of device, one device at home, that does not help that family out, um, you know, in the long, in the short term or the long term when it comes to schooling. So I think, you know, the pandemic has certainly accelerated our timeline on looking at how can we um, implement the digital inclusion plan and working with partners. Um, you know, here in New Haven, we have Yale University, which is definitely, um, you know, helping out the administration and talks and everything. And we have a few other uh, partners, partners here in New Haven that will definitely help us in accelerating the trying to at least start bridging the digital divide here in New Haven. Uh, Nicole, I wanted to ask you, you know, there are other cities that have worked on creating their own networks, functioning as internet service providers. I'm thinking of Chattanooga, Tennessee. What's your take on city-run broadband? So it's so interesting to have that question posed, Lucy. Um, I was just on the phone with a school district that is trying to build their own fiber network. And it was a school, dis you know, a school-related uh, network. And the gentleman asked, that he was having some trouble around the municipal broadband laws, and this wasn't in Tennessee, and what they should do about it. Um, I mean, I think models like Tennessee are exemplary examples of like how a city could take control over this, but it took years for Chattanooga to get to the place where it's at, and it's one of the few cases where it's actually a functioning business model. That's not always the case around the country. I mean, I started in this space nearly 25 years ago when Earthlink had come in to try to push municipal broadband throughout the country. And in some cases it worked and in other cases it didn't work. And I mean, if you fast forward to the internet today, we have other challenges in terms of the exposure of our privacy on uh, broadband networks or you know, just data security issues, issues that we did not have about 20 years ago. And I think for schools, as opposed to trying to relitigate broadband laws, I think what Michael is talking about is, is quite accurate. I think that the city has a responsibility to sort of put this back on the table and have a conversation around what does broadband access look like in cities across the state? And what does state broadband access look like? Do we have a continuous model of how people are connected and for what end? I think it's also important that schools have their own vision of what remote access looks like as well. At Brookings, you know, I'm a researcher and um, have had the opportunity of working locally with communities and districts and businesses and government um, over the course of my career. But one thing I'm working on now is like, what does a 21st century remote access blueprint look like for schools and you know if you don't mind Lucy I just want to you know share and summarize in 30 seconds what I think that looks like I think to Michael's point 
you got to know where access is. And I would push Michael's point even uh, further. Michael, this might be a, a good takeaway. I think we're spending a lot of time building networks over networks when we haven't even asked some households what their connectivity looks like. Uh, there are many schools that are putting out surveys right now, but they're not asking individual families, who is your cell phone provider? Do you have broadband in the home? You know, trying to get, I think, an inventory of who those providers are, specifically serving the populations that we're trying to get at is actually, you know, something as granular as apple pie, but it's also very helpful because it'll help us frame, I think, the, the pie bucket that we're trying to actually create within communities. I think it's also important for this remote access plan uh, for schools as they reimagine themselves to think about what goes into the new backpack. We used to think it was just textbooks and notebooks and pens and papers. And now we need to think about, you know, the digital resources that help people connect to the Internet in meaningful ways. And that's going to be a, a big change for educators who traditionally have been worried about things like screen time. Right. Going forward. Where are the blind spots? That's the piece I've already spoken about in terms of mm -hmm. local connectivity needs. How do you work effectively with the library, with the churches, with other nonprofit organizations? And I think coming out of this, schools need to think about who runs this. It's so interesting listening to Michael. I've spent so much time with superintendents who are doing a good job in the interim, but this is not what they do. <laughs> and so they're sitting there negotiating broadband <laughs> contracts and Wi-Fi hotspots, pretty much saying to themselves, I don't know how I got here. And so I think it's important for schools to begin thinking about who runs that Office of Innovation, who's responsible for ensuring, particularly as we come out of this pandemic, who's going to keep this connectivity lit and who's going to inventory the assets and make sure we're tending to the needs of that child, whether they are in urban America or rural America, or they're sitting somewhere in between in suburban America. We have to make broadband not just about inclusion, but about equity going forward. And so again, Lucy, I think this is a great show because I think it highlights across the country how schools and cities are trying to problem solve, as Michael said, in the immediate. But whatever we do now will have a long-term consequence going forward. And it's just unfortunate that there have been like, I think in Kentucky, there are schools that have taken this on prior to the pandemic, mm -hmm. but they're still trying to figure this out. You're hearing Dr. Nicole Turner-Lee, again, Senior Fellow and the Director of the Center for Technology Innovation at the Brookings Institution. She's also the author of the forthcoming book, The Digitally Invisible, How the Internet is Creating the New Underclass. Uh, we're going to keep talking with her after the break, but I want to thank Michael Gormany for joining us, Budget Director and Acting Controller for the City of New Haven. Michael, thank you. Thank you guys for having me. It was a, it's a great topic, as uh, Dr. Turner-Lee said. Thank you. Coming up after the break, so what plans does the federal government have to expand broadband to parts of the country without, and will it be affordable? You can join us too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. The FCC has voted to award $16 billion in broadband build-out investment. Marketplace reported the agency also said it would work on creating updated, more accurate maps and use those maps to award an additional $4 billion in infrastructure investment. I wanted to ask our guest, Nicole Turner-Lee, again, Senior Fellow and the Director of the Center for Technology Innovation at the Brookings Institution. What do you think of the FCC's plans? It's moving in the right direction from the standpoint, the more data we have nationally, the better and, you know, a more sufficient we'll have in terms of our broadband networks. And I think this absence of, you know, tangible, accurate data is standing in the way of us actually being able to act quickly on some of these concerns that are being expressed around the country. You know, the fact that we started a national broadband map in the about 2011, I was looking through some notes as I've been working on my book manuscript. Shameless plug, it will be out in 2021. Um, <laughs> we'll have you back. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, that we've been talking about a national broadband map for quite some time. And I think the rubber has met the road when it comes to the pandemic, because it's really, you know, amplifying how important having that data at both the national as well as the census tract level is really important. So I think what the FCC is doing and what Congress has actually allocated is is interesting. I I think there's not enough money in it probably going forward. I mean, there's just not enough money for broadband period uh, in anything. I mean, we're seeing a lot of legislation come out that's actually trying to support more ubiquitous broadband access. But, But friends, like, This is an issue that is, again, been seventh on the list of national priorities. And I'm taking this from a conversation I had just recently with a a, a statewide um, coalition. Mm -hmm. They've always thought about broadband, but it's not made it to number one. And when it's not number one, the appropriations suffer, the investments and things like a national broadband map suffer, as well as the utility in terms of what we should be using broadband for actually doesn't get as much attention. So I'm hopeful that the FCC, who's been very um, vigilant in trying to ensure that they're meeting the basic needs around just not just education, but telehealth, you know, business expansion, et cetera, that we'll see change. But Lucy, we're at a, we're also like at an inflection point. Mm-hmm. The extent to which we continue to deal with this public health crisis and the partisanship around reopening or not to open, I think may dilute. I think some of the very causes and concerns that people are worried about. Mm. And that worries me to a certain extent. You know, when I hear on the news, the fact that schools are suffering through like, you know, what are they going to do? They're sort of afraid around reopening. And that's maybe the fourth or fifth story, Mm. you know, on a newscast when many of us parents are trying to figure out, you know, what do we do to balance work as well as childcare, as well as school going forward? Mm. And so we're just in a space where the FCC has to do their part, but I think we need to see other government agencies come to the table to figure out how do we alleviate this crisis. Nicole, we just have uh, maybe three minutes left. I'm sorry to throw this question at you at the end. You know, some do advocate that broadband be treated like a utility, like electricity or gas. Uh, You know, what tools do you think the government could use to make sure that residents have access to affordable broadband? You know, I'm one of those people, I have to admit, that when I look at the situations of what has happened to with government-regulated uh, utilities like the water system in Flint, I do get worried, right? Because I think that broadband has become one of those utilities in, you know, quote-unquote, that has become a little cheaper in some cases, or the technology has been more diffused. 
so years ago, and I'm not going to say my age, and I'm glad your viewers cannot see, your listeners can't see me. Um, you know, we didn't have smart mobile phones 10 years ago. We had different types of rotary service, et cetera. And so the communications landscape continues to change. So with that, I'm somewhat cautious about saying that we need to make this utility that's rate regulated to the extent that it's going to solve some of the, you know, challenges when it comes to the affordability of broadband. What I would suggest is this, that we need to revisit what universal service looks like in this mm -hmm. country and perhaps think about ways that we could fund broadband, you know, out of our national treasury where we're not thinking the same way we're not thinking about food recovery services like our SNAP program or TANF, that we also think of broadband as one of those national imperatives that has a place in our budget that's not necessarily subjected, uh, unfortunately, to the partisanship that happens with the election of a new administration. But I think it's important going forward. We think that everybody in this country should be connected because it has a value. It, it's the title of my book. It moves people from being invisible to visible and productive uh, citizens of our country. If we feel that that's important, we need to sit at the table and reconsider how do we apportion universal service so that everybody is connected. And I would suggest that that involves updating the regulations that uh, you know govern broadband service, taking a look at the private-public partnerships and the investments that are being made, as well as polling our citizens to better understand what their particular needs are going forward. And so I, I just am thankful that you actually had this conversation because I think it's so necessary at this time. But hopefully these immediate uh, junction, you know, junctures will become much more long-term and lasting because we never want to get here again where we have so many people disconnected from what's now the online versus inline economy. I want to thank Dr. Nicole Turner-Lee again for joining us, Senior Fellow and the Director of the Center for Technology Innovation at the Brookings Institution. Uh, she's also authored the forthcoming book, The Digitally Invisible, How the Internet is Creating the New Underclass. And Nicole, you mentioned that book's out next year. We'd love to have you back. Thank you. I will come back, Lucy. I'm going to hold you to it. I'm going to find you. And Carmen, I will be back. Um, but yeah, I thank you. And I thank you for having Janice on. You know, as a researcher, it's always great to know that you talk to the right people in the right community who really give you a great qualitative landscape of what's actually happening. Mm. Well, so thank, thank you. Thank you, Nicole. Today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. You can learn more about the show. Just download Where We Live on your favorite podcast app. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening. <laughs>